Welcome to the Focus Church Teachings Podcast. We hope this brings a lot of encouragement to you, but we also want you to know that we believe discipleship doesn't occur here, but occurs in small groups where people share their gifts with each other in many-to-many discipleship. If you want to know more about that, stick around after the teaching. Um, so as I mentioned, Bartholomew, uh, Nathaniel, uh, and Andrew, in fact, the only reason we know Bartholomew and Nathaniel are the same person uh, is because the lists tell us that. In other words, if you take out who's missing from one list and who's added to another list, those are the two that correlate as Bartholomew and Nathaniel. It's not unusual, as we've talked about before, for people to go by two names. Um, and uh, so we don't know why in this case uh, we kind of see it that way, but it's not a big thing. We don't have a lot to say about Bartholomew, but we do have a little bit, and so I will um, will tell you what we do know. So those of you who were here a few weeks ago, remember, and we're going to read this in a second, so we're not going to read it now, but you remember the calling of Bartholomew. It was this interesting story where Philip, who we talked about last week, so we actually read this last week as well, um, uh, Philip comes to Bartholomew, comes to Nathaniel, and says, I found the Messiah, essentially. I found the Messiah. And he's in Nazareth. And the first thing we learn about Nathaniel is that he's one of those guys, or at least at this moment, he's in a mood to be one of those guys, who when he hears someone talking about good news, great news, overjoyed news, news of something they've been waiting for for a thousand years, his response is to rain on that and say that can't possibly be true. And this is when he says that interesting statement. He says, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Could the Messiah really be coming from Nazareth? That's not possible. And you can just imagine, Philip, I know we've all had this experience. You're really excited about something. You go to someone, you tell them about it, and their response is like, oh, brother, who cares? Or it's not as good as you think it is. <laughs> or you can't be right. And, but Philip is not put off by this, as we talked about last week. He's just like, well, come see for yourself. Just come see. And that's the second thing we learned about Nathaniel, even though he responds in this really negative way right off the bat, which we do not entirely understand. What's interesting is that Philip says, well, then come and see. And Nathaniel comes. Right? So if he was determined to be negative, if he was determined to just not believe anything Philip said about this, that's kind of a surprise. And so that's, a, that's something we need to note, that he does come, that, that Philip says, well, come and see. And Nathaniel comes, and he does see. Um, and then we have this really weird fig tree story, right? <laughs> where, uh, where Jesus says, here is a man in whom there is no deceit. Here is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit, which is an interesting way to meet so when you meet someone to introduce yourself. And then Nathaniel says, how did you know, basically? And Jesus says, I saw you under the fig tree before you even saw me. And this, we don't know what this means. And we talked a little bit about it a few weeks ago. You can go back and listen to the podcast or find it on Facebook if you want. We really don't know what this is about. There's a lot of speculation, a lot of commentaries that get into the, some possibilities. The reality is we don't know why this is so impressive to Nathaniel. But what we do know is that he is impressed. Somehow this convinces him, this persuades him, it overrides all his doubts about Nazareth, it overrides maybe his ego about not wanting Philip to be the guy who finds him first. Whatever it is that was kind of making him negative, this apparently overrides all that. He's so impressed by what Jesus says, seeing him under the fig tree, that he follows Jesus, he becomes one of the apostles. And that is, barring just a few very, very slight mentions, one of which we'll actually see tonight, of, of lists, lists are kind of the only time we see him going forward listed as being there sometimes with other people. And that's all we know. So I'm not going to get into the fig tree story. Like I say, we talked about that a little bit a few weeks ago. And there's not much more to say about Nathaniel, but I do want to highlight one thing that happens in this because it actually plays into what we're going to learn about Andrew tonight. And I want to talk just a little bit, just briefly, about Nazareth. 
Not a lot, but why is this Nathaniel's response, right? I mean, he's like, hey, I found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth. And Nathaniel's first response is, can anything good come from Nazareth? Well, here's the truth. The truth is that Nazareth as a place is small and unimpressive. In fact, it's so small, it's so unimpressive, it's so unknown, even in Jesus's time, that every single one of the gospel writers, whenever they mention Nazareth, they have to explain where it is. They always have to say Nazareth, which is in Galilee. If, they, if Nazareth was known, you wouldn't have to say that, right? I mean, if, if I'm uh, you know, talking to people about San Francisco, I don't have to say that this is in California, right? If I'm talking to people about certain cities, if, I, if I'm talking to people about Paris, I don't have to say, which is in France, <laughs> right? People know. But when every time they mention Nazareth, the gospel writers have to say, oh, this is in Galilee. It's that small. It's that unimpressive. It's just, it's just a place. It's just there. I think one way to kind of see it, it's easy to pick on Nathaniel. Why is he being so sort of prejudiced right off the bat? But I think we can think of this regionally a little bit too. I think that in some ways, Nathaniel's feelings are not unlike the feelings of people who live on the coast, about the South or the Midwest, right? They, we might use terms like backwater or hick or something like that to indicate nothing happens there that's really important, right? Call it flyover country, right, for politics. It's not a place the politicians visit. There's kind of this idea of these places is not as important. In fact, even here in the Southwest, I'll tell you a story, but I will leave out names um, because I don't want to pick on any particular person. But in my other job where I work, I had an opportunity once to help out on uh, a very, uh, very famous actress who um, lives in Santa Fe now. And so she had come down from Santa Fe to get some help with her product. And as I'm helping with her product, she makes this statement and she says it as an aside, really like as an obvious thing that even I would not disagree with. Though I live in Albuquerque, she says to me, Albuquerque, you know, it's just such a third world country. And <laughs> I just, I just, <laughs> looked at her. I didn't say anything, but I thought that is so crazy that her perspective is that Albuquerque is this third world country. She just had this real disdain for it. And that's kind of how Nathaniel is. He's like, Nazareth? Nazareth? Does anything good come from Nazareth? So that's kind of the, the picture. That's where he's coming from. There's even kind of an interesting point uh, later where it says that Jesus went down from Jerusalem to Nazareth. Let me, let me tell you why I quote this. This is the, and where this happens and why this is interesting to me. So we know that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. And you might even say, Bethlehem, that's a small town, right? We're told that's small, that's unimpressive. It's just this little town. That's true. It's small, but it's not unimpressive. Here's the thing to understand about Bethlehem. Bethlehem is known as the city of David, right? David's the most famous king of Israel. He's the most popular national historical figure other than Moses, perhaps, or Abraham. He's right up there, right? And so it's called the city of David. Not only that, Bethlehem comes from Bethel. Bethel is the place where Jacob met with God. And everybody knew that. Bethlehem is prophesied to be an important place uh, for the Messiah. So even though it's small, it was the kind of place you would expect the Messiah to be in some ways if you were a Jew. It's not unimpressive. So that's where he starts. Then he's, his parents, he kind of goes into hiding for a little bit because Herod is trying to get rid of the Messiah, uh, this, this renegade king that he's heard about who's been born. So we don't hear much more. And then all of a sudden we jump ahead and Jesus is 12 years old. And the next time we meet him, he's at the temple in Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is both big and impressive. This is neither small nor unimpressive. Jerusalem's a big city and it's extremely important to the Israelites. This is where the temple is. This is the center of Jewish religion. This is where they come many times a year to celebrate 
Passover to celebrate festivals. And so one of these festivals, they come. There's a ton of people there. They're living in tents. They're all hanging out together. They have big, large families that Jesus gets left behind, right? Now, this is not negligent parents. This is, again, everybody's watching everybody. Everybody's taking care of everybody. I know a lot of kids who were left at church by their parents when they drove home and had to come back and get them. So it happens because you trust the community you're around. And this is kind of what happens to Jesus. He gets left behind at the temple. They don't know where he is. They end up coming back and getting him. But then it says this. It says they decide to go back to their hometown, to Nazareth. Now, we're not quite sure where they were before this, but they go back there. And it says it this way. They went down from Jerusalem to Nazareth. Now, geographically, that's certainly feasible, and that's probably all the author meant by this. I'm going to make a different point because I think it fits our point, not because it's what the author intended. It says he went down from Jerusalem to Nazareth. Geographically, that's true. Jerusalem's up on the hill country. They come down into the valley to get to Nazareth. But it's an interesting statement because I think it also reflects the way people would have seen it. For Jesus to go from Jerusalem to Nazareth would be a big step down. (laughs) From big and impressive to small and unimpressive. And that's where they go and that's where they settle. Now, I was thinking about something that I didn't realize or didn't see, so I didn't bring it up a few weeks ago, when Nathaniel and Jesus first meet, and Jesus makes that very strange introduction. And he says, oh, here is a man in whom there is no deceit. And you think, what a weird way to introduce yourself, but something occurs to me. When Nathaniel hears about Jesus, the first thing he does is judge Jesus by appearances, right? First thing he does is say, oh, he's born in Nazareth, he can't be worth anything. When Jesus meets Nathaniel, first thing he does is judge Nathaniel by the heart, by looking inside him, by going deeper. Is it possible that this is part of why he does this? It's to show Nathaniel, you look at the outward appearances, I see deeper. Don't be fooled. Don't judge a book by its cover, Nathaniel. I'll show you by telling you something true about you. Perhaps it's not ironic. Perhaps Nathaniel was one of those, was one of those radically honest people, right? He's certainly blunt. So maybe that's part of his personality is also that he's radically honest. And Jesus says to him, I see that about you. And then he continues to tell him things he sees in Nathaniel's heart that go beyond the appearance. Maybe other people don't know that Nathaniel is so honest. Maybe other people don't know whatever is going on at that fig tree. And so it reminds me of this is a theme that we see in scripture goes all the way back to King David. When David is selected as king to replace Saul, Saul is a big tall, imposing warrior. He looked like a king. When God is picking someone to replace him, Jesse has a bunch of sons and he brings all of them before Samuel to decide who's going to be king. And the last one they go to is David. Why do they go to David last? Because he's the smallest and least impressive. And this is the one that God has Samuel pick. And then he says to Samuel these words. He says, man judges by the outward appearance, but God judges by the heart. And so we see that that's what's happened here is that Nathaniel looks at the outer appearance, Jesus at the heart. Now, why have I talked so much about Nazareth? Because it's going to lead us into something here about Andrew that I want us to see. We don't have anything else here to go on to learn about Nathaniel. So we're going to move on to Andrew, but I want you to remember this idea that God chose the small and unimpressive Nazareth to make his entrance from. And now let's talk about Andrew. Andrew, poor Andrew. I have a lot of sympathy for Andrew because the first thing, the most significant thing, you could argue the most distinguishing characteristic that we learned about Andrew. In fact, 
the way he is introduced in every single gospel, every single time he's mentioned, is that he's Peter's brother. Have you ever been in that position or known <laughs> or felt like that? That people only knew you as somebody else's something? It's, it's really fascinating. Andrew is repeatedly identified as Peter's brother. Peter is not once identified as Andrew's brother. <laughs> it's really not fair. It's, re it's really unbelievable. It's crazy how much of this is true. This is arguably, as I say, the most distinctive thing we know about Philip, about Andrew. See, even I forget his name. That's how invisible this poor guy is. This is the most distinctive thing we know about Andrew. Even Philip, who we talked about last week, is kind of not that vocal. We don't know about that much about him, but Philip is just Philip. <laughs> He's not somebody else's something. He's not Nathaniel's friend. He's not somebody's brother. He's just Philip. Andrew is always Peter's brother. Now, I imagine many of you can relate to this. I definitely can. Ironically, coincidentally, I have a brother named Andrew. <laughs> Andrew has probably never, in, whenever we're together, in the times that we've grown up, I don't think I've ever heard anybody refer to Andrew as David's brother. However, <laughs> I have frequently been introduced as Andrew's brother. L let me tell you a little bit about Andrew. I, I love him. He's one of my favorite people in the world. But my brother, Andrew, was valedictorian of our high school. About 500 people in our high school, so not huge, but not small. And he was valedictorian. He had the best grades of anybody in that entire 500-person school. And he graduated three years before I did. So as I come in, I'm sorry, he graduated the year before I entered high school, three years before I got there. So as I enter high school, he's just graduated. It was impossible for me not to continually, regularly be introduced as Andrew's brother. In fact, he was not only, and is not only, extremely smart, brilliant, you would even say, but he's extremely talented as a musician. Today, he is actually world-renowned as a conductor. Every year, he travels to Italy. He's part of what's called the Festival du Monde, or Festival of Two Worlds, which is an opera festival between America and Italy, and he's in charge of rehearsing the American chorus, the contingent of that. So he travels to Italy as part of this incredible, really prestigious festival. He conducts, uh, uh, I'd probably get this wrong if he's listening, uh, Montreal Symphony, or one of, the, one of the Canadian, the chorus, yeah, he conducts the chorus for one of the, the symphonies there, Philharmonics there, and he conducts, he's just world-renowned, he's extremely well-known, very talented, very smart. And so I've, I grew up with this, when I was in high school, in fact, I decided I, I was not a great student, I knew there was no way I was going to be valedictorian, but I also didn't want to completely flunk out because that gives you a lot of attention, then I'd be known as the black sheep. I just didn't want to be known, I just wanted to kind of be missed and invisible. And so I actually decided to just, just mediocre it as much as I could. And I got through high school with a lot of C's and a D or two, no F's, uh, not very many A's. And I remember even my, the school counselor occasionally would call me down to his office in the first year after Andy, Andrew had left. And he would ask me he'd first, because he had to, I think, he would say, how are you doing? And no matter what answer I gave, his next follow-up question had nothing to do with me. His follow-up question was always, and how's your brother Andrew? <laughs> the only context in which he's ever been referred to as my brother. I get that experience, and here's Andrew, right? This is how he's known throughout the Gospels. This is what he gets forever, is that he is 
Peter's brother. Now think about being Peter's brother. Peter is the pillar of the church. Peter is the one to whom Jesus said, you shall be the rock upon which this foundation shall be built. Peter was instrumental to the beginning of the church. Peter was probably the most famous preacher in the early church. Peter was, was the leader of the early church in very many ways. Peter, Peter got to hang out with James and John and Jesus and all these unique, special, amazing events. Peter, Peter, Peter is the most vocal. Peter was impulsive. Peter spoke all the time. Peter is not only written about in the Gospels more than any other apostle, but it's entirely likely, I think, that the Gospel of Mark is even written by somebody who knew Peter and is writing down Peter's account. Peter gets to write some of the letters in the New Testament. Everywhere you look, it's Peter. I'm going to make a Brady Bunch reference for those of you who are my age. Peter, Peter, Peter. Someone who understood my Brady Bunch reference. This is who he was. This is who Andrew was. This is how he's described to us in the Gospels. What do we learn from that? What does it mean? Why is that? Why does poor Andrew have to be experienced this way? Well, hold that thought. What else do we know about Andrew? You know, he's a fisherman, like Peter. <laughs> he probably followed Peter into the business, right? This is a family business. So he hangs out with Peter. See, here's something that's interesting. I get to shed a little bit that thing of being Andrew's brother. In the circles I dwell in now in my church, rarely do people call me Andrew's brother. They don't know Andrew, they know me. I get to shed that. Think about Andrew. As he grows up, what does he do? He moves into this circle of apostles where Peter's a big deal. <laughs> and he's still referred to as Peter's brother. So he's a fisherman. He follows him into the fisherman. In fact, we know that there's James and John and Peter and James and John are brothers, and Peter and Andrew are brothers, and they, they form this, this partnership, it appears, in fishing. They become this, this sort of fishing conglomerate over time. But every time that it talks about the four of them fishing, you know whose name we almost never hear? <laughs> Andrew. <laughs> we hear Peter, we hear James, we hear John. Consider this. Do you remember the story about the fishers of men? We read that a few weeks ago, where Jesus comes to Peter, and it says he's fishing with James and John and some others. And then it says that they catch all these fish. And then Jesus says, I will make you fisher of men. I suspect strongly the others includes Andrew. Why wouldn't he be there? He's part of that fishing conglomerate. <laughs> but he doesn't even get a name at that very moment. The gospel writers, some reason, don't think it's important to mention. Luke simply says, others. How about after the resurrection? Here's how John tells the story after the resurrection. He says, afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel gets mentioned in this list. Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, oh, and two other disciples were together. You know who I strongly suspect is there? Peter's there. James and John are there. That means Andrew's probably there. He gets lumped in with two other disciples. <laughs> At least it didn't say Peter's brother. Even Thomas, who is clearly probably a twin, isn't called so-and-so's brother. <laughs> Andrew is quite simply not regarded as important enough to mention by name at these moments. He's like Nazareth. He's small and he's unimpressive. And I suspect everybody listening to me has felt that way at some point. Overlooked, unappreciated, invisible, small, unimpressive. The big secret is, even if you're somebody like me who speaks in front of people, there are so many times a day I feel small and unimpressive. 
You may not know that to look at people, but I think most of us have felt that way at some point. Very few in the world don't seem to struggle with that. But Andrew does. So now that we've kind of got this picture of him as Peter's brother, let's take a look at where he's mentioned. We looked at the, let's, let's look at the calling. We've already seen it a few times now. Let's take a look. Let's just read it to remind us. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Sorry. They followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. And it was about four in the afternoon. I want you to notice, we don't know the names of either of these disciples yet, right? When we do get the name of one of the disciples, notice why we get the name. Let's keep reading. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and would follow Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is Christ. And he brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Do you understand the only reason we know Andrew's name in this story is by way of introduction to Peter? <laughs> we wouldn't know this was Andrew, except that it becomes relevant so we understand how Peter met Jesus. That becomes, Andrew becomes a plot device to introduce us to Peter. <laughs> now he's there and what he's doing is important and he follows Jesus. But it does make you think that John might not have even given us his name if it hadn't been that he was trying to help us understand how Peter came to know Jesus. But think about what's happening here. What actually is happening here is actually important. Think about the repercussions of Andrew introducing Peter to Jesus. Everything that flows from that. Arguably, Peter is one of the most essential humans if we can call any human essential. I understand, ultimately it's God. But as you look at the foundation of the church and the building of the church, Peter, like Paul, he's one of those people that you're grateful was there. Because had he not been there, would the church be the church? By the Holy Spirit, of course it would be. But Peter's the one he used. Peter's the one we know. And so what this little moment where, where Andrew introduces Peter to Jesus turns out to have long-lasting repercussions. What he did really mattered, and yet we almost don't even know his name. Let's look at the next place Andrew shows up. But before we do, I want to show you something to kind of drive home this point. The story we're going to look at next, which, which is a, a, a story that Andrew's in, is a story we've already seen. We saw it last week when we talked about Philip. It's the feeding of the 5,000. But before we get back to where we left off last week, I want to show you this story recorded in each of the four Gospels so you can see something about what I'm talking about to drive home the point we make about poor, Peter being, poor uh, Andrew being invisible. So here's Matthew 14, 14 through 18, says it this way. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. And Jesus replied, they don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. Now, I want you to think about something we don't think a lot about when we read a story like this. Clearly, clearly, Matthew does not intend us to understand that when he says the apostles said this or did this, that they did it in unison, right? It's not actually as if all the apostles said with one voice, uh, we have here only five loaves of bread and two fish. <laughs> 
No, clearly he's just saying, among the apostles, somebody said this. And they agreed. There was no disagreement, but it wasn't that they all spoke. This is just a compressed picture of what happened. Somebody in the apostles said these things and did these things. But this is the main point that Matthew wants us to focus on, is what Jesus is doing, correct? All right, hold that thought, and let's go on to Mark. Mark says this. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Did they all say this? Did they speak as one voice? No. no, somebody said this. And the other apostles were like, yes. Or they all said things like this. Send the people away so they can go to the surrounding countryside villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take more than a half year's wages. Now, we actually know from what we read last week who actually said this. Do you guys remember who it was? It was Philip. Philip's the one who actually said it would take half a year's wages to give them each one bite. Okay, Mark's recording this, but he's using the, the they. He's just saying this is what the apostles said. We now know it's actually Philip who said this. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asked. Go and see. And when they found out, they said five and two fish. Here again, did all the apostles go? Did they all find five loaves and two fish? Did they all come back? No, but as a whole, this is what happened to the apostles. So in the gospel, in this that's recorded by Mark, again, the emphasis is on Jesus. So it doesn't tell us that Philip said this. He doesn't tell us who else has anything to do with this, except that the apostles as a whole did this. It's not wrong. It's not incorrect. It actually makes sense because we're emphasizing the stories, we're emphasizing it. It's even possible, and I don't have any problem with this, that if the Holy Spirit didn't so inspire Mark or Peter, if this is from Peter, with a reminder, it's even possible that Peter doesn't remember who said what. Do you ever have these experiences? Of course you do. But he remembers somebody said it. But who remembers Philip? <laughs> Not very many people. So maybe he didn't remember that. Okay, so anyway, here's the story again in Luke. Luke says this. Luke, late in the afternoon, the 12 came to him and said, send the crowd away so they can go to the surrounding villages and countryside and find food and lodging because we're in a remote place here. And he replied, you give them something to eat. And they answered, we only have five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. About 5,000 men were there. But he said to his disciples, have them sit down in groups of about 50 each. Again, who said this? Did they all say it? No. And this one compresses it even more, right? He says, we have only five loaves of bread and two fish unless we go and buy food for all this crowd. That's the whole conversation we've seen. From all three of these, what we understand now is that Jesus with the apostles has a conversation in which he says, we need to feed all these people or they say we need to feed all these people and he challenges them to feed them. And then one of them says, it's gonna cost us half a year's wages. We happen to know that's Philip because John tells us that. And then he says, Hmm, well, what do we have? Go find out. And somebody goes and finds out and comes back with five loaves and two fish. And then the miracle unfolds. Luke, it's interesting. We know Luke is someone who's into details. He gives details of events. He gives historical details, which have been proven accurate over and over and over by archaeology and unfolding documents. He proves out to be a very solid historian. But he's not detailed about people in the way that John is. We've already seen that when it comes to the apostles who aren't known very well, it's John who gives us the most information. We learn about Thomas from John. We learn about Philip from John. And guess what? We're going to learn the little we do know about Andrew from John. Here's how John records the same event. And you saw this last week. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he's going to do. And Philip answered him, it would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. I want to be clear. I don't think this means the other gospel writers were wrong, because I think the truth is, even as he says this to Philip, the other apostles are there. 
They're all chiming in, agreeing, hearing. It's all part of the same conversation. But you remember this, and you remember what happened, but we didn't read further. I summarized for you, but we didn't read further last week because I wanted to save it for tonight. Because Andrew only gets so much press, let's give him his due. <laughs> so here it comes. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, <laughs> spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? And Jesus said, have the people sit down. So now we know. The person who actually found the five loaves and the two fish was Andrew. Notice something interesting. Andrew, we've only met one other time. What was he doing last time we met him? He was making an introduction between somebody and Jesus. What's he doing here? Making an introduction between somebody and Jesus. Notice it doesn't say he brings the bread. It doesn't say he brings the fish. What does he do? He brings the boy. Which makes sense because to take the bread and the fish from the boy seems really bad anyway. <laughs> Instead, he's like, hey, guess what? We're going to go see Jesus. And the boy's like, cool. So he takes the boy to Jesus and he says, here's the boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But I want you to notice something else. It's really weird that Andrew does this. I think it's not at all unlikely that the other apostles walked by this small boy with five, four barley loaves and two fish and many other people who had brought their own lunch and didn't ever think, well, this could be useful. Andrew sees the boy and he's like, Jesus said, get food. I don't know what else to do. <laughs> Here you go. And notice, I think even Andrew's a little bit embarrassed. He's like, here's this boy, but I understand it's not going to go very far right? He's kind of awkward about it. Do you see that? He's like, here he is, but how's this going to help, right? I get it. Because don't you think that even as he's doing it, the other apostles are kind of embarrassed for him? See, that's what I think. See, think of, I, as a parent, I can see this. If one of my kids, thinking they were doing a great thing, brought to this big man, this celebrity, this person, that my boss, however you want to look at it, somebody really important to me who was looking for something, and one of my young children brought them something that clearly was not going to be enough, my initial response would be, thanks, go away. And I suspect the other apostles were kind of like, Andrew, you're always doing this. How is this going to help? But what does it do? What happens as a result of this? It's kind of amazing what happens. I just want you to see there's a, there's a similarity here. Maybe he even thought the same of Peter. We know Peter as this big, important person. Andrew just knew him as his brother. Do you think when he went and brought Peter to Jesus, he thought, oh, Peter's going to really help Jesus? I don't think he thought that at all, because that's a nutty thing to think. I don't think he thought, oh, I bet if I bring Peter to Jesus, Peter will end up being like the, the leader of the whole movement. I don't think he thought that at all. He didn't know what Jesus would make of it. He just wanted to see what Jesus would make of Peter. He wanted to see what Peter would make of Jesus. And he wanted to see what Jesus could do with this little boy and these five loaves. And maybe it's nothing, but he just wanted to see. So he creates this introduction, which is nothing. And yet, everything that happens as a result happens because Andrew brought this little boy to Jesus. And this is what it says. There was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. 
Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish, and when they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. And after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. You would say something. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. This is so impressive to people. Jesus knows if I don't get out of here, this is going awry because they're going to try to make me king. That's not my goal. Everything that unfolds here unfolds because Andrew does what Andrew does. And what Andrew does is really simple. He just likes to help. Do you see that? He just wants to help. He doesn't have a grand plan. He doesn't have a grand vision. I gather Andrew's not a big speaker or preacher or orator. He doesn't talk a lot. We don't see him in the New Testament making big... He's not a preacher. That's, I think, part of the issue with Peter, James, and John. They are all preachers. Why do they get so much press? Because they're always making it. Peter gives the first major sermon in the new church. James is regarded a pillar of the church and is constantly giving sermons and writes a letter that's in the New Testament. John is second to Paul in writing most of the New Testament. They're speakers. They teach. I don't think Andrew's a teacher. He just likes to help. And for him, his particular brand of helping is simply to build bridges. It's just to make introductions. It's to say, let me bring you to this person here, which is kind of fascinating. And the other gospel writers were impressed by the miracle. Of course they were. That is the more impressive moment. So impressed that they forgot the person of Andrew. And let's be honest, I definitely would. I already know I'm bad at details like that. I would not remember who said what. I would just remember that Jesus fed all these people. And when I told the story, I'd tell it like Matthew or Mark or Luke. For whatever reason... John likes to give people their due, I think. Let's see another example of Andrew. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Do you see all these great buildings? Replied Jesus, not stone, one stone will be left here on another. Everyone will be thrown down. This is just a side note, but it's so related to everything we're talking about, Andrew. Notice that part of the message here Jesus is giving is, you think something is impressive because it's big, but these aren't even going to last. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign that they are to be fulfilled? This passage doesn't add much to us about Andrew. We don't know more about him because of this, except I'm intrigued by the fact that this very special triumvirate that we always see hanging out with Jesus are included this time by Andrew and this time he's mentioned. And we have one of these moments where, again, are we supposed to understand, Mark, that Peter, James, John, and Andrew spoke in chorus and asked this question? (laughs) Of course not. Somebody asked it. Possibly Andrew, because he's mentioned here, he's not mentioned elsewhere, but that's not even my point. I think what's amazing about this is it makes me wonder about something. See, I think the reality is, take Jesus out of the picture for a moment, where's Andrew likely to be at any given moment? With Peter, James, and John. Don't you think? That's where he hangs out. Peter's his brother, James and John are his partners, maybe John's his friend, which is one reason that John remembers who said that at the the, uh, feeding. I think he's hanging out with them a lot. In fact, he's kind of that little brother that's tagging along. (laughs) Right? 
wherever Peter, James, and John are, there's Andrew, which makes me wonder, how many other times was he with Peter and James and John and Jesus and they just didn't tell us? You think? I wonder. I don't know. But it certainly could be. We've already seen that there's a tendency to forget him. <laughs> so is it possible that he was often in these conversations, that he was in these places that Peter, James, and John were, but because he's not an orator, because he's not a speaker, because he's not a preacher, because he's easily forgotten, because what he does is make introductions. And by the way, if you're someone who builds bridges and make introductions, you're often at really important places at important times. But is it possible he just isn't noticed? It just makes me wonder it also makes me wonder if the apostles didn't recognize something we don't. Maybe they actually saw him as one of the leaders of the apostles. But we don't think of him that way because he didn't speak a lot. But maybe they saw him as in that inner circle. Maybe we're the ones who don't see that. Because we're reading text, and text is about words, and Peter and James and John are all about words, and Andrew's just about helping. Think for a second about the, the, um, the feeding of the 5,000. I think it helps us understand why people sometimes are forgotten or why, why we don't always identify, why we don't honor the people we should honor. No, hold that thought. I'm going to say that later. I'm going to say what I was going to say. I'm going to say it later or fit better elsewhere. Happens sometimes. All right. Let's look at, at John. One more place where we see Andrew. But before we see this passage, which you'll recognize because we actually read it last week, let me set the stage just a little bit. So this is six days before Passover. And six days before Passover, that means that all sorts of Jews have come for this festival, for the Passover. And Jesus, knowing his death is approaching, this is the Passover that he is going to die very close to. Knowing his death is approaching, he decides to spend some time in the home of his friends, Lazarus and Martha and Mary. You may remember those names, Lazarus he raised from the dead. The idea, I think what we begin to see, if you read the Gospels clearly, is these are good friends of Jesus. He likes to hang out with them. He enjoys being at their house. And while he's there, he hints at his death rather strongly. He, he basically, Mary anoints him with perfume. Some people complain. We'll see that when we get to Judas. But he gets anointed with perfume and they complain about it. And Jesus' response is, she's just preparing me for burial. I don't know about you. That seems like a pretty strong hint. After this comes Palm Sunday, which we're all familiar with, where Jesus is proclaimed Messiah and King by this really large crowd. This just makes the religious leaders, the Pharisees, even more antsy and angry than they were before. It makes the Romans a little bit uncomfortable because they're wondering if a revolution is coming. It's just kind of an awkward moment for all the political people and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they begin to look for ways to imprison or kill Jesus. And then we have this passage. Now, there were some Greeks among those who came up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. So we've got some converted Greeks who are here for the Passover. Why are they here for the festival? Because they're converted. I think that's the only way to understand Greeks coming to worship. It says they came to worship. So they're Greeks who have converted to Judaism. So they come to worship at the temple, but they really want to meet Jesus because he's all the buzz. Palm Sunday's just happened. They're like, come on. So they go to Philip. We talked last week about why maybe they go to Philip. It could be because their circles overlap a lot. In other words, Philip is potentially a Hellenistic Jew, and they're converted Greeks, which means they both embrace both cultures. 
from different ends. And so they may travel in the same circles as Philip, so that makes sense. They go to Philip. Philip is not averse to introducing people to Jesus. He's done that already. So why in this case does he go to Andrew? I don't know that we know the answer, but I think it tells us some things about Andrew and Philip's relationship. And I think, if you think about it, is it possible he goes to Andrew because as we talked about, the other apostles did see Andrew as a leader. Is it possible that he thinks, ooh, I'm going to go tell Andrew because Andrew likes to help. Is it possible that Philip's like, Jesus is really busy right now. (laughs) But Andrew's good at introductions. I mean, I think you could just argue that Philip goes to Andrew because Andrew does what Andrew does and Philip appreciates it and respects it and says, this is what we need. What do we need? We need an introduction. Philip's really good at introductions. Look at some Greeks want to meet Jesus. I'm going to go talk to Andrew. I'm going to get Andrew's help. I think in some ways you can just see it. It's because Andrew's one of those people that invites people asking him for help. You know, there are some people that you go to for help and you dread it. Let's just be honest. There's probably people in your life that when you go to them for help, you kind of are dreading it. You wouldn't go if you didn't have to, but you know when you go, there's going to be a cost to pay. A cost in judgment or a cost in reproach or a cost in an eye roll, right? (laughs) or a cost in a hassle, or there's going to be some cost involved, and you just would rather not go to them for help. But I hope you have had the privilege that I have had in my life of also knowing people who are a delight to ask for help. That when you go to them for help, you actually feel freedom even in the going, because you know whatever happens, whether they can help you or not, it's at least going to be a pleasant encounter. You're going to go, and you're going to enjoy the asking for help. And I think Andrew may just be one of those people. Philip's like, I could take them to Jesus, but I could go ask Andrew too, and that sounds kind of fun. (laughs) And besides, this is the kind of thing Andrew does really well. Of course I could do it, but I want to ask Andrew to help me. I just think it kind of paints this picture that we've already seen through the gospel so far of Andrew being this guy that gives help without judgment and without complication. And part of the reason is because Andrew isn't actually thinking about the long-term repercussions. He doesn't really care if it's necessarily going to be a big thing. You know what's interesting about this introduction between the Greeks and Jesus? You know what happens as a result of that? Neither do I. This doesn't maybe turn into a big thing. We don't know, right? The, The food, the feeding, that turned out to a big thing. Peter, that turned into a big thing. How many other people does Andrew introduce to Jesus that we just don't hear about because it wasn't a big thing. Certainly would be to whoever he introduced. I think he's just the kind of guy for whom it's a pleasure to ask for help. So these are the things that we see in Andrew. So what are the lessons that we get from Andrew? Start with this. Behind every great person is another great person. <laughs> I, just, I just like the idea that we, we forget. We often honor the wrong people. But I think the reason we often honor the wrong people is because it's impossible at any given moment to really trace what great act leads to what great act. This is what I was going to say earlier that I'm going to say now, so I did come back. (laughs) Think about the feeding of the 5,000 and ask yourself, who was most essential to making it all work? Okay, I know the answer is Jesus. And let's stipulate that that's true in everything in life. But once we've stipulated that, Now let's ask, humanly speaking, whom's most essential? Well, maybe you think I want you to say Andrew. So you say it's Andrew. Is it though? 
What if there was no little boy there for Andrew to get? Oh, so maybe it's a little boy. Was it though? Where did the little boy get his bread from? Well, maybe his mom baked it. So maybe it's the little boy's mom. But wait a minute. Where did the mom get the grain to bake the bread? Maybe she got it from her husband who bought it at the market. Well, that's good. But where did the husband get the grain to give to the mother, to give to the boy, to give to Andrew, to give to Jesus? Well, from a farmer. So maybe it's an unnamed farmer who grew the grain that was used to make the bread that ended up going with Andrew. This is like one of those nursery arms, right? The house that Jack built, right? But that's my point. We can't actually figure out who's responsible for what happened. Because they all are. And I think what happens is that makes it easier then to honor the end result, right? And there's nothing wrong with that. It's not that Jesus isn't important, and we've already stipulated he's the most important always. And it isn't that Andrew isn't important. But it's just that those are the easy ones to honor because we see it. But it doesn't mean that the other people didn't contribute something which was important to this great act being done. This incredible miracle that Jesus does, which makes people want him to be king, again, I understand God's sovereignty. But the way Jesus shows us the picture of his interaction with humans, I think it's fair to say it this way. This great miracle that Jesus did could not have been done if Andrew had not gone out and found a little boy. And if a little boy had not brought his food and been willing to give it up and on and on and on. Behind every great person, behind every great act, is another great person whose name we forget. (laughs) Who is just Peter's brother. Someone who just wanted to help. Who wasn't worried about what was small and what was large. See, that's the thing. Do you see that's the difference between Andrew and the other apostles? When they went to the little boy, they said, that's too small. Andrew said, it's small, but it's something. And I just want to help. And I think maybe Jesus can do more with this something. All of us have a stewardship of grace. Remember, we talked about that last week. We all have this stewardship, this gift that we give. And some are visible. Some stewardships of grace are visible and they're big. And it's right that we honor them. Some of us play on the worship team. Some of us speak in front of people. Some of us write. Some of us do things which are easy to see and easy to to honor. And it's not wrong to honor them, but as Paul points out, what we do is we forget the invisible honor that should be given as well. Some are small and virtually invisible, and we forget to honor them. And the thing I want to say to you is, it's not going to change. Let's, let's be clear. John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, they're good people. They wanted to honor the right people. They wanted to recognize the acts of every person, and they forgot Andrew. <laughs> it's not going to change. So don't take heart. Don't, don't, don't wait for the moment when everybody will recognize exactly what you've contributed. I suspect, like the rest of us, Andrew wanted and liked being appreciated, but it didn't prevent him from doing what he does. And what I do want to encourage you with is this. God remembers every small See, when we get to heaven, if we want to know, so tell us more about all the people we didn't hear about, God can do it, (laughs) right? God knows the details. He knows who said what to whom and when and how. He knows what act. He is the only one who could trace back all of the people involved in that bread and that fish being available for Jesus' miracle. 
And he remembers all of them. And he honors all of them. And from what we talked about in the kingdom of heaven a few weeks ago, it seems like God even takes a sort of special delight in what the small and the despised bring. Here's the other thing. You may feel like someone's brother. Again, I've felt like that throughout my life many times. You may feel like someone's brother or someone's friend or some acquaintance who's more powerful and popular. You may feel like the invisible forgotten person. But I was thinking about this, and you know who throughout my life, even when I was regularly referred to as Andrew's brother, I didn't even talk about my oldest brother, Kevin, by the way. He is equally as impressive as Andrew. I really had two of these to follow. And the only person in my life, not the only person, but one of the most important people in my life who never called me Kevin's brother, Andrew's brother, you know who they were? My mom and my dad. How weird would it have been if they always introduced me as my other son's brother, <laughs> Kevin's brother, Andrew's brother? That would have been devastating, right? That would have been awful. But of course they never did that. Because you know who I was to them? Their son. See, here's what I want you to think about. God never thinks of you as so-and-so's brother. God never thinks of you as so-and-so's sister. God never thinks of you as who you are related to somebody else. He sees you for who you are, for who he made you to be. And as far as he's concerned, you know who you are? You are his precious child. As far as God is concerned, you are his child. That's the relationship that matters to him. That's the way he always sees you. When he looked at Andrew, he didn't ever think, oh, there's Peter's brother. When Andrew entered the pearly gates, according to legend, false legend, passing by Simon Peter, that's how important Peter is in our stories. As Andrew enters the pearly gates, Jesus did not say, oh, you're the gatekeeper's brother. He said, Andrew, it's good to see you. You are his child, and that's the relationship that matters to you. And the last thing we learn is that helpers who genuinely want to help pave the road. There are helpers whose main motivation is not to help. You know what? Take their help. Don't scorn it. Anyone who helps, helps. <laughs> As Paul would say, I don't care what the motivation is. I just rejoice. But sometimes people who help but don't generally want to help don't make the road any easier, do they? They don't really pave the road for you to make it easier for you to get from A to B to C. They don't really do that. I've noticed in my life, and I suspect you have too, that there are helpers and there are helpers. Helpers like Andrew, who help without reproach and without requiring recognition. I suspect that Andrew wanted to be appreciated just like the rest of us, but if he's like the most impressive helpers that I've seen in my life, and I suspect he is, it just didn't change whether he helped or not, if he was noticed. And he almost never got resentful for it. And yet, we all know the other helpers, too. Those who help, and they want to be acknowledged. And if you don't acknowledge them, that helps ours. Or those who help, but they help with condescension, or they help with judgment, or they help in a way that makes you feel smaller. I don't think Philip would have gone to Andrew for help if it would have made him feel smaller. I think he went to Andrew for help because it made him feel better. Two quotes I want to give you. One is a friend of mine, a pastor friend of mine. Years and years ago, he said this, and it has stuck with me ever since. 
He was talking about the fact that Jesus says, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven is the servant. And he said, called us to have a servant's heart. And at the time that this, this movement, this church that I was part of, there was a lot of emphasis on a servant's heart. And it was good. And it is good. And it is something we should really seek. But they made a point because everybody, it became a point of pride, right? I have a servant's heart. I'm more of a servant than you are. You know, it just became this point of pride. And this teacher said something which kind of really put the kibosh on that. He said this. He said, the way you know if you really have a servant's heart is how you react when people treat you like a servant. And we all went, well, I don't want that. Hmm. <laughs> and then we all realized what that meant. Second thing I want to share with you is I've mentioned my brother Andrew, and, and, um, and I just want to say this, give him a little bit of honor for a moment, because he is one of those helpers in my life who just genuinely paves the road, makes it easier. I've had opportunity with my brother to go to him for help at some of my most humiliating, embarrassing, lowest moments. Because he, he has at times had a resource that I have often not had, and that would be cash. <laughs> and there have been a lot of people in my life who have helped over the years, and some of them just like Andy, and some of them not like Andy. But the thing I always knew about Andy is anytime I went to him for help, he would do something that, leads, that is my second quote. James says this about Jesus. He says, whenever you ask Jesus for wisdom, he says it's good because Jesus is someone who gives without reproach. Do you know what that means? It means that if you go to Jesus and ask for wisdom, he doesn't say to you, it's a good thing you're asking for wisdom, you knucklehead. He doesn't say to you, yeah, I'll give you wisdom because you're really blowing it. There's no reproach in it. He doesn't say to you, you, why do you have to ask for wisdom? I've already given you everything you need. He just gives it. And any time in my life that I've gone to my brother Andrew for help of an embarrassing nature, of a humiliating moment, I've never enjoyed it. But I've always known, because I learned from him, that as I went to him, there would be no reproach. There would simply be how much, and if I have it, and I can help, you've got it. And I've learned from him, I want to be like him. I want to be like that, Andrew, and I want to be like that, Andrew. Be a giver. Be a helper who genuinely just wants to help. It means sometimes you may not have a great plan. Sometimes you may not even know what to do. Sometimes you won't know how to give it. Sometimes you will not have what you need. Five loaves and two fish will not be enough to meet the need. Maybe you can make that introduction with that five loaves and two fish and Jesus, and maybe Jesus can do something amazing. And if you're someone who just likes to help because you want to help, I think you put yourself in a position like Andrew to see those things happen. And you may never be known, and people may forget your name, and people may mistakenly call you so-and-so's brother because they're not able to see further. Like Nathaniel, they may accuse you of being Nazareth, small and unimpressive, but God sees you as worthy to be his hometown. God sees you as someone in whom there's no deceit. God sees you as someone from whom he can feed 5,000 men plus the women and children and have enough left over. Which brings us to the same closing we had last week. It must be something God wants to drive home. Every single one of you has a gift. 
You have a stewardship of grace that God has given you. If you've received the Holy Spirit, if you've accepted the salvation of Christ, it is a guarantee. It is not something given to you for your maturity. It is not something given to you because you've proved yourself worthy of it. It's something given to you because you said yes to the gift of salvation. And God said, guess what? Along with every free gift, I give more free gifts. It's bad marketing, but it's the way our God works. And he gives every single believer a gift. And that gift is to bless other people, to pave the road, to make the journey easier. That's why I want to close tonight with the same verse I closed with last week. As each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Whoever speaks, let him speak as if it were the very words of God, but also whoever serves, let him serve by the strength which God provides. I got to say this one thing. We think discipleship usually comes in speech. When we think about discipling someone, we usually think it comes because someone speaks the words of God. I think that's us and not scripture that says that. I think that's our tradition and not God's heart. I think when you show someone mercy, when you show someone encouragement, when you introduce them, when you make a bridge, when you provide a meal, when you move a chair, when you help, you also are discipling because you're introducing people to Jesus through your service, through your gift. Maybe yours isn't like Andrew where you introduce people, but whatever it is, we'll introduce people to Jesus. That's what discipleship is. Okay, back to, let me finish the verse if I can remember where I was. Whoever serves, let him serve by the strength which God provides so that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ to whom belongs the glory forever and ever. Amen. Most churches believe in the value of small groups and a focused church. We are so convinced that's where the discipleship happens that we put all of our resources, our training, and our assessment into the focus groups. And we believe that you can be part of a focus group from anywhere in the country. So if you'd like to join us, just email me at pastormac, M-A-C, underscore at mac.com. And I'd love to tell you how you can be part of it. Either way, I hope this has been encouragement to you, and we'll see you here again next week.